0: Hey, everyone. Nico here. A quick note before we begin today's show. This episode was recorded over the summer. And while 99% of what our guest Ron Collins and I discuss is evergreen, we do mention what was then a forthcoming First Amendment coursebook, which is called First Things First, a modern coursebook on free speech fundamentals. That coursebook is now out and available, and I'll link it in the show notes for anyone who's interested in checking it out. As for everything else, we should be up to date. Now, on to the show. At the world of free expression through personal stories and candid conversations. As always, I am your host, Nico Perino, and I'm joined in FIRE's D.C. office today by the regular, so to speak, guest, Ron Collins. Ron, welcome to the show. It's great to be back, Nico. Yeah, I should say welcome back to the show. For those of you who haven't heard one of our previous episodes with Ron, he's got a long list of credentials. He's the co-director of the History Book Festival, which is a new festival, correct? Uh, We're coming into our third year in Lewis, Delaware. And before that, you were the uh, former scholar at the University of Washington School of Law. You are the current editor of First Amendment News, which is now living on FIRE's website. Yes. And which you can register for First Amendment News uh, to receive it in your email on our website. Right. And it's free? Free. And it's one of the best resources out there for information about the First Amendment. He's also the author of many, many books, including the forthcoming First Things First, a course book on free speech fundamentals.
1: Uh yes mm-hmm. and it's uh, I think the least expensive college uh textbook it's an ebook and it'll be under $5 replete with hundreds and hundreds of audio and video links and we don't have the release date for that yet right
0: uh, coming soon very soon very good he is uh, as i said also a regular guest on the show we've discussed uh, many things from like the the Espionage Act, to Lenny Bruce, to what were you on here last time discussing? I think The People vs. Getty. Yes, um, which is your most recent book. That's correct. Well, Ron, thank you for coming on the show to, again today. I want to talk about one of your most recent uh, pieces of scholarship. It was in the FIU Law Review. What is that? Florida International? Florida Internation- International University Law Review. And it's called Thoughts on Hayden C. Covington and the Paucity of Litigation Scholarship. So Hayden C. Covington a name I hadn't been familiar with before. I imagine from the title of your article, not many people who work in First Amendment law are familiar with. Uh, But let's just go over some of his accolades. Yes, but just before we start, uh, the vast, vast majority of
1: professors in college and in law schools who teach constitutional law and who teach First Amendment law, the vast majority, I would say 98%, maybe 99%, maybe 99.5% have never heard of uh, Hayden C.
0: Covington. It's amazing. And it's amazing for these reasons. He argued forty-four cases before the Supreme Court of the United States, and he won eighty-five percent of them. Uh, during one week in nineteen forty-three, he argued fourteen cases before the United States Supreme Court, which I don't think the Supreme Court hears fourteen cases in a given week anymore. Now, in
1: in in, in reality, in actuality, some of those cases were combined.
0: Okay, um, but but still, I mean, even
1: four cases is a major. Even deal. two cases yes. in one week, unless right. you're the Solicitor right. General,
0: right, is is pretty incredible. He's responsible for a lot of the doctrine that are just a regular part of the First Amendment today, including the incorporation doctrine. He's responsible for that, the state action doctrine as applied to the First Amendment, the preferred position doctrine, and the least restrictive means doctrine, and he had a success rate before the United States Supreme Court higher than any man except former NAACP attorney and subsequent Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall.
1: Uh, right, and that's only because um, Thurgood Marshall argued fewer cases. So if you actually look at the same number of cases, you might have equaled or even uh, surpassed him. Um, there's one thing I don't know if you have uh, in terms of what you're thinking about, but when he argued cases in the Supreme Court, he would come in a bright green suit with uh, padded sleeves, a plaid uh, red tie, and he would almost scream uh, while he was speaking and never let a justice interrupt him at all.
0: Yeah, he was kind of a outsized figure, it seems, six feet tall. Right, right. And he liked to work the media, from my understanding as He well. did, he
1: did. Um, and uh, he also was somebody who... Um, Literally and figuratively, uh, rarely passed a,
0: up an opportunity for a fight,
1: whether it was in a courtroom or on,
0: on the street. Yeah, he worked 18 hours a day. Right, right. Workaholic. And so. And his, then toward the end, he represented a famous boxer in a trial. Yeah, someone named uh, Muhammad uh, well, Ali. Well,
1: he was then Cassius Clay, but yeah, uh, Muhammad Ali he would represent. Yes. And he
0: didn't represent him quite well, according to your no, article, but we can no, get to that. right. Okay. The Supreme Court cases aside, he also had 100 decisions handed down by various state Supreme Courts and also triumphed in dozens of lower court rulings.
1: Yeah, and sometimes in one year, he he alone would be handling as many as 50 cases in state courts and federal courts. I mean, it was just, the man was a machine. Why haven't I heard of him? Well, first of all, where did he get his clients, right? I mean, uh, so he had a client pool uh, that just for years and years and even decades uh, was the ideal pool for bringing cases to the Supreme Court. He was the lead counsel for the Jehovah's Witnesses, all right? And the Jehovah's Witnesses uh, have—if you take the Jehovah's Witnesses out of the constitutional equation of First Amendment law, you lose a big chunk. So a lot of our First Amendment freedoms today are based on cases involving Jehovah's Witnesses. And of course, uh, in the 30s, in the 40s, in the 50s, the discrimination against the Jehovah's Witnesses was just over the top for any variety of reasons, which we'll get into. But in any event, um, uh, for uh, a good number of years, Hayden Covington uh, was their lawyer, and so that's where he. Uh, I don't think he ever argued any cases in the Supreme Court that did not involve Jehovah's Witnesses.
0: Who are the Jehovah's Witnesses? I mean, they. You. You talk about how they were very controversial, particularly in the first half of the century, but even you know into the fifties yeah. and sixties. I know them. I'm sure many of our listeners know them as sometimes the the friendly people who knock on your door. They are. They are. They are, and they were. (laughs) I mean, you know, Uh, they're pacifists. So so yes, yes, Um, which didn't win them
1: much um, favor in the Second World War Uh, because of the tenets their beliefs. um, They uh, uh, objected uh, to uh, saluting the flag and standing up and saluting the flag. Uh, This was a tenet, a sincere tenet of their uh, beliefs. that their only loyalty was to Jehovah. Uh, they didn't believe in the Trinity. They didn't believe in the afterlife of the soul. They didn't believe in hell. Uh, so in, in that respect, they were seen as heathens. Uh, they were rather critical of the Catholic Church. So there was that as well. Um and uh, they were seen as unpatriotic, particularly at the time of the, of the war. And one of their cases that found their way to the Supreme Court, and this one Hayden Covington did not argue, it was in 1939, the Flag Salute case involving uh, the Gobitis case that was argued in the United States Supreme Court, uh, and they lost. And eight at, to one. Yeah, eight to one. And after that case, the discrimination and hostility toward the Jehovah's Witnesses was just beyond description. Uh, I mean, they were being rounded up, they were being mugged, they were being clubbed, Um, they were being prosecuted and persecuted. I mean, it was so bad uh, that Francis Biddle, the then Attorney General of the United States, uh, uh, went on a national radio address and urged Americans uh, to be more tolerant and to end this reign of terror against the Jehovah's Witnesses. I mean, it it really, uh, it had really ratcheted up, particularly after that Gobitis case.
0: Yeah, let's, you provide a lot of statistics in your article about the violence that was brought upon Jehovah's Witnesses. And you write that between 1933 and 1951, that's less than 20 years, there were 18,866 arrests of American witnesses and about 1,500 cases of mob violence against them, often They would be arrested because other people were violent against them. They were seen to have incited the violence, and that actually led to some Supreme Court cases. There was an argument in Connorsville, Indiana, where Hayden C. Covington and a co-counsel argued on behalf of Jehovah's Witnesses in that town, and Hayden Covington had to go catch a plane, I think, to Maine or to Boston, somewhere in the Northeast, And after the argument, there was a mob of people who were looking for him and his co-counsel because of their representation of Jehovah's Witnesses. And we should also mention that Covington was a witness as well.
1: Oh, yes, yes. And, uh, I mean, I I believe he had converted uh, years earlier, but, yes, he was uh, a witness. He carried a baseball bat in his car uh, as a means of of self-defense. I mean, it was that bad. I mean, there were situations where he was literally moments ahead of being murdered.
0: Yeah, in this Connersville case— he writes, I went to catch the airplane in Cincinnati and out of Connorsville. And then brother Victor Schmidt, who was his co-counsel, uh, he writes, he's dead now. And he's dead with his wife because they were mobbed by a crowd. And as they mobbed them that night in the darkness, after the case in Connersville was over, they were screaming and yelling that they were going to kill me that night. The Lord delivered me. Uh, Covington writes, at the right time, and I would have been killed that night.
1: I mean, there's photographs of Hayden Covington and his face all... Uh, beat up and black and blue and what have you, of course. But there's also records from the time. He said, "Well, if you think I look bad, you see, you should see what happened to the other guy." Uh, <laughs> and, and I mean, I think at one point, at one point, he said, "One time, I got a triple against a guy, meaning he hit him in, in self-defense with a bat." I mean, the Jehovah's Witnesses were very polite. Uh, they usually were very well dressed. Uh, they wanted to pass out literature involving the Jehovah's Witnesses. I mean, there were cities in the United States that had signs as you entered the city, a prohibiting Jehovah's Witnesses from entering the city. I mean, literally naming them as a group, and it was that bad. Mm-hmm. Um, and the hostility toward them was, as I said, incredible. But particularly during the war in 1939, that somebody, the children, school children would not, because of their faith, salute the flag, all right? Um in other words, bear false witness. I mean, the only person that you or entity that you salute or stand for is their Lord, Jehovah. I mean, we may have differences of their views. We may not think much of their religion, all right? But the sincerity of that religion uh, cannot be questioned. And in a country that was, at least in terms of the way it was constituted, was built on religious toleration. What was going on against the Jehovah's Witnesses was really um, in blatant violation of the very principles upon which this country uh, was founded in terms of religious freedom.
0: Yeah. So enter the Watchtower Society, which I guess is the organization or group right. that was created to defend the rights of the Jehovah's Witnesses, and. Covington wasn't the founder of that organization, no. but he was, a, he was a member of it. He was Run. the lead counsel, uh, became the lead counsel for them. And they developed a strategy to essentially protect Jehovah's Witnesses' First Amendment rights and, as a consequence of that, to protect all of our First Amendment rights. I mean, our First Amendment rights were built upon these Jehovah's Witness cases that were brought by Covington and the Watchtower Society.
1: Well, absolutely. Um, I mean, we hear a lot about, and rightfully so, about Thurgood Marshall and, and ACP and the strategy they used to bring cases uh, to the uh, federal courts and into the U.S. Supreme Court. Ruth
0: Bader Ginsburg with women's right, rights. Right,
1: But Hayden Covington was doing the same. I mean, they actually had pamphlets that they produced that Hayden Covington and others produced as part of the Watchtower uh, group uh, that they gave to Jehovah's Witnesses, telling them their legal rights, what they could and couldn't do. Uh, they would pick communities where they wanted to challenge the laws. Uh, they would orchestrate what they should and shouldn't do. Always very polite. I mean, you know. Uh,
0: Except when they're calling the police goddamn racketeers. <laughs> right, right. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we get did, into the chiplinski the, yeah, case
1: yeah that 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 did that did happen uh they did uh, at least a few of them i mean by and large they were very very simple people mm-hmm. and very polite uh obviously there's exceptions particularly when you find yourself in the heat of the moment mm-hmm. as in the uh chiplinski case but um, but there was this strategy, uh, and uh, it was very well orchestrated uh, across the country, and Hayden Covington played a major role. So when the cases were fed up through the federal courts and the U.S. Supreme Court, in terms they had pretty much been vetted in terms of the kind of factual record that they wanted to bring to the Supreme Court. So we can get into it later. I mean, uh, Hayden Covington won a lot of cases. I, I can't say that he was uh, the Lawrence tribe um, or the Paul Clement of his time, uh, because uh, as a Supreme Court advocate, uh, he wasn't necessarily very profound. But in terms of bringing the right cases at the right time to the right court, he he, he played a very significant
0: role. Well, in that there there is kind of a discussion as to, and this kind of gets into the whole theme of your article, there's a question as to whether advocates before the Supreme Court really make all that much difference, or whether the justices have kind of already decided how they're going to approach a case when the case comes before them. Maybe they read the briefs, but the, at least oral argument. There's People say you can only lose a case. Uh,
1: yeah. I mean, let me put it this way, but cases very much depend on the factual record brought before mm-hmm. them. That judges have no control. I mean, Supreme Court justices have no control over. So that factual record, which is really pivotal, which is really, if you will, foundational, I should say, Um, that in that regard, he played a very significant role. And, um, uh, you know, he, in the the various cases, it showed that both politically, religiously, and constitutionally, uh, the Jehovah's Witnesses were victims and had been victimized time and again uh, with wild abandon. And so in that regard, um, Hayden Covington plays a very significant role.
0: I want to talk about some of his cases. Let's start with the flag salute cases. Uh, And to do that, we need to start with Gobitis, which wasn't necessarily his case, though he worked on it, correct? Right, Uh, This is Minersville School District v. Gobitis. This is the 1939 Supreme Court case in which the court held 8 to 1. Per, per, I mean,
1: 8 to 1, okay? I mean, what's significant about this case, among other things, is the person who wrote the majority opinion, all right? And that person is Felix Frankfurter. If you think that anybody should be sensitive to the plight of victims of religious discrimination, you would think that somebody who is a progressive Jew, which Frankfurter was, uh, he'd earlier been involved in uh, defending, among others, Sacco and Vicente, all right, or at least arguing in, in, in support of them, uh, you would think that someone like that. Would rally very strongly to the defense of Jehovah's Witnesses. No, went just the other way.
0: There, there's some interesting questions about the justices and their approach to Jehovah's Witnesses because Jackson, who wrote the majority opinion in Barnett later, right, he was
1: which vindicates the Jehovah's Witnesses' uh, First Amendment claim um, and has some of the most incredible language in ever written in a First Amendment opinion.
0: Mm-hmm. And, but Jackson was kind of prejudiced against the witnesses. Oh,
1: yes, yes, it, kind of prejudiced. I mean, he had written in opinions, in earlier opinions, that uh, these people are troublemakers. I, he didn't use that word, but something to that effect. Uh, so if you had had to pick a person um, who was going to write an opinion reversing Gobitis, because Gobitis is reversed just three years later, Uh, in the Barnett case where Justice Jackson writes the majority opinion, you certainly wouldn't have thought that Justice Jackson uh, would come to their defense. Moreover, uh, Zachariah Chafee, a noted First Amendment scholar, the man that really kind of if you will uh, aided Holmes in a uh, uh, aided and abetted Justice Holmes in terms of developing First Amendment theory uh, in 1919 and thereafter and the prominent Harvard scholar. Uh, you know if you look at his treatise, he really dismisses the Jehovah's Witnesses as just uh, you know a, a kind of a sidebar, a bunch of if you will uh, troublemakers who are a nuisance. It isn't until later in the Barnett case, uh, that he begins to have a, a change of heart, as did Justice Jackson.
0: What were the facts in Gobitis?
1: Well, they're very similar. I mean, students, young students, I believe. Yes, well, today what we call middle school, uh, there was a requirement that students. And it was and this was particularly during the war. remember, this is 1939.
0: Uh, the United States hasn't entered the war yet. Yeah, but the Nazi power. Yes
1: right right but the, 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 that sentiment is there. and it's going gonna, it's gonna to go from 1939 to 1943. so by that time we, we, the United States is, does enter the war. Um, and it was just a just it, to call it a requirement uh, which it was, but it, it was just so much a part of the custom that people, young people, students, middle middle uh, uh, grade um, uh, students, uh, students 10, 12 years old, would just at the beginning of the day stand and pledge allegiance. This was just kind of like... Uh, I had to do it when I was in school. Yeah, and, and you didn't... I think they still do it. Yeah, and, and you weren't questioned and you weren't told, now, Johnny, you have to stand up and what have you. It was just kind of the norm. So when somebody, on religious reasons... Uh, refused to do that. This was just seen as hostile uh, toward the government, being seen as unpatriotic and the students would be uh, suspended or even expelled. Uh, so it was pretty serious matter. Uh, and the case went to the Supreme Court and it, it had argued um, free exercise of religion and they lose uh, with Justice Frankfurter writing uh, the opinion for the court. And you know it seems strange to us today. Uh, But in those days, um, it was not. And after the court rules against Gobitis, I believe 44 states had— 48 states. 48 states, excuse me, 48 states, yes, which was, I guess, all that was in the union at that time. Uh, 48 states had either old laws or new laws that compelled uh, pledging allegiance to the uh, flag, and the vast majority of them, the penalty was expulsion.
0: Yeah, Well, if you have any question as to how Supreme Court decisions can shape the culture, uh, there was effectively a civil war against Jehovah's Witnesses as a result of this case. Uh, I mean,
1: basically, the case said it's open season. When Gobitis came down in 1939 and denied their First Amendment claims and said, yes, you can discipline, suspend, or expel these students, it was open season, on Jehovah's Witnesses.
0: Yeah, there were something like 20,000 Jehovah's Witnesses who were expelled from school as a result of this because it was against their faith to salute the flag. But you have 48 states that passed these mandatory flag salute laws. Which meant
1: that there was no public school that they could go to, right? I mean, if you were expelled from one public school, you're not going to be admitted to another public
0: school for doing the same thing. So they either had to
1: pay to go to private school or they didn't go to
0: school. Yeah, they were being run out of town. There was one Southern sheriff who you quote, who told a reporter why the witnesses were being run out of town. He says, quote, they're traitors. The Supreme Court says so. Ain't you heard?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I mean it's 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 a very dark period. I mean, we we talk about the McCarthy era, um, which is in the 50s, but in the 40s, uh the animus toward Jehovah's Witnesses uh, was just enormous. And as I said, it got so bad that the Attorney General, Francis Biddle, a man of conscience, by the way, a former law clerk then called Secretaries uh, to Justice Holmes, uh, felt the need to go on, on national radio and call for toleration and, and calm. I mean, it was
0: that it was that bad. So what happened at the court to go from an 8-1 decision saying that mandatory flag salute laws are constitutional, to just a few years later getting the Barnett decision, which says they're unconstitutional.
1: Well, I think what happened is is that while we're in a war fighting Nazis and people of conscience saw what was going on against the Jehovah's Witnesses, how bad it had become. I mean, I'm just speculating here, um, but I, I think that, that hostility really got some people to stop and think about... Um, um, about the wisdom of that decision, because the facts are essentially the same. I mean, they're, they're very similar, I mean there's nothing significantly different um, in terms of the factual record between the two cases. And as I said, you have people like Justice Jackson uh, doing, you know, doing a 180 degree turn uh, in the Barnett case. A turnaround compared to how he had voted earlier, Mm -hmm. and some of the opinions, concurring opinions he'd written, uh, uh, chastising the Jehovah's Witnesses
0: and the Barnett. As you mentioned earlier, you get some of the most glowing language in defense of free speech and free conscience that of any Supreme Court decision that's ever been written. That's ever been written. You get Jackson writes. I, I I don't. I can't remember it verbatim, but he essentially says if there's any fixed star in our constitutional constellation, right. Uh, yeah. It's that no official higher petty can mandate what is essentially orthodox in religion or.
1: Pretty good, pretty good, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, it's just an incredible line. Um, and it just shows how when the window of the mind opens up, uh, and perceives an injustice, sometimes against all odds, uh, the world changes. And Hayden Covington, although he didn't argue the first case, uh, a fellow named Rutherford, who was a legal counsel then, argued that case along um, with a Harvard law professor. That was the Gobitis case. But when it comes to the, uh, the Barnett case, Hayden Covington is there in his green suit, his red plaid tie, uh, six feet tall, red. Uh, pretty close to yelling when he's speaking to the, uh, to the justices. Um, and it's a new day. But it's a new day when it comes to the flag salute, because the Jehovah's Witnesses cases will continue to come to the Supreme Court.
0: Yeah. What were some of the other major First Amendment cases that Hayden C. Covington argued that established new precedent, good precedent, as we might say at fire, For the First Amendment.
1: Well, I mean, for example, what constitutes state action under the First Amendment? There was just a case before the Supreme Court this term. In other words, how much um, private action, when infused with some government action, becomes what we call state action, enough to apply the Constitution to particular forms of discrimination. Um, Jehovah's Witnesses, in, in terms of picketing, all right, Uh, association uh, when it comes to, I mean, there were all sorts of things. I mean, like I said, a lot of picketing cases, a lot of assembly cases, uh, a lot of solicitation cases, you know, distributing literature. Um, uh, There were uh, uh, some cases that that were brought uh, in terms of – When can somebody speak in a particular area, like a public forum, you know? Uh, So whenever there was an opportunity to prosecute and persecute the Jehovah's Witnesses, and again, remember, Covington had picked the communities where they wanted to bring the challenges. He had orchestrated, you know, with the clients what sort of uh, conduct they would engage in to trigger prosecution. So he was very careful in the variety of cases that were brought to the Supreme Court. Uh, By the way, a lot of free exercise. I mean, we're talking about the speech cases, but there was a lot of free exercise cases. Uh, I mean, freedom of religion today, like I said, if you take um, Jehovah's Witnesses out of the equation, there's just a big gap. And it's amazing today, uh, people of faith, whether or not they be Christian, Jewish, Muslim, what have you, I think everybody's on board in terms of defending the principles that Jehovah's Witnesses fought for. But it wasn't true in the thirties and the forties and the fifties,
0: Covington said of their efforts to change the law uh, with regard to many First amendment rights, as you mentioned exercise press assembly uh, speech of course uh, that these witnesses who were plaintiffs in these cases were writing their faith into the law right and and
1: you know it's a bit exaggerated, but there is a measure of truth to it um
0: Uh, They're writing faith into the law, all right? It was there, it just needed to be buttressed. Yeah, I think the quote would be better if he said, writing the freedom to practice your faith in the law right, better, right. because it, yeah. the law doesn't only apply to Jehovah's Witnesses yeah. or their tenets of their faith. I, I think
1: he actually meant the former,
0: but in terms of what was actually being done, I think you're right.
1: The latter is true. By the way, we didn't... I, I, want, I wanted to mention, his name Hayden derives from the German heden, which means heathen, mm-hmm. all right? So by name, he was a heathen. I mean, it's just... It's, it's really... A, incredible that a man who spent his life uh, 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 defending religious freedom, that his name uh, should derive from a German word meaning heathen, Heathen, yeah. Which
0: probably derives from a Latin word. Right. uh, Well, I guess German's not a... uh, Anyway. He wasn't successful in 15% of the cases, he argued, in front of the Supreme Court. And there's one mo- very notable one, which is the Chaplinsky case, which created essentially the fighting words doctrine, which many of the, us in the First Amendment community hate, although it's not often applied. Uh, this is the the case in which a Jehovah's Witness who's essentially mobbed right. by you know anti-witness activists, uh, people seeking to bring violence upon these witnesses, uh, and the witness seeking police protection uh, that wasn't being provided to them. Yeah. Calls them a goddamn racketeer.
1: Yeah, I mean, there were a number of situations where mobs attacked Jehovah's Witnesses and police just stand stood idly by. Uh, I mean, there were a number of instances where they broke it up, obviously, but there were other instances where they didn't, and uh, sometimes that led to quote unquote fighting words.
0: Uh, and uh, this uh, whereby a witness. Yells at a police officer. <laughs> right, right. Do I mean, something. Right, uh, in
1: colorful language. I mean, not 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 obscene language or anything like that. But but nonetheless, um, and so yes, and the fighting words. Doctor, he loses that case. Um, I mean, fortunately. Um, that the fighting words doctrine today is a doctrine more in theory than in practice. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh now that could cause there's any variety of ways. I mean, today you can a person can approach a police officer and say a number of things and, and not be uh charged with quote unquote fighting words.
0: But the idea behind the fighting words doctrine is is you say something that a reasonable person just couldn't control themselves and and might fight you might attack you as a result of your saying that thing. Did the police officer actually attack Uh, Chaplinsky in this case, do you uh, remember? They did, yes. In fact, by the way, fighting words, a typical situation
1: is when you're in a bar and a guy next to you uh, is 300 pounds and has tattoos and has a Harley T-shirt. And you say something about his mom. Yeah, right, right. Right, sitting right next to him at the bar. Right. Yeah. Uh, those are fighting words. There's also, in well, whether or not the state prosecutes you or not, it's not a very smart thing to do. But, uh, so, yeah, that's the idea. And, yeah, it starts uh, with Chaplinsky He lost that case. Um, but there weren't many uh, that mm-hmm. Hayden Covington uh, lost. And it's just an it's an incredible um, story about a remarkable man uh, who did have his own demons, Um you know, yes, he worked those eighteen hours, but you know, as his life uh, plays on, um, it doesn't continue to be as wonderful and as wondrous as it had been in the thirties, and the forties, and the fifties, and even a little part of the early sixties.
0: Yeah, he had a problem with drink. He did. He did. He.
1: Uh, I, I think it's fair to say he was an alcoholic. Um, it caused uh, problems with his family. It caused problems with his church. He went and attacked uh, the uh, leader or the, whatever they call the, the chief figure of the Jehovah's Witnesses at the time. He openly attacked him. I mean, by attacked, I mean verbally attacked, not physically attacked. Um, he had this uh, real uh, drinking uh, problem. The problem was is that by by the 60s, he no longer had any clients. Because he I mean, would well, won. He was all a these, victim of yeah, his own success. Right, right. And there was nothing – he couldn't get a job at a firm um, and he really wasn't very successful as an individual uh, lawyer out there hustling for cases. Uh, And so uh, here he had – when most – by the way, his pay in those days was just enough to, to kind of pay the bills and what have you. It wasn't like he was making a lot of money. He never made a lot of money. Um, so when the Jehovah's Witnesses cases are over, he's out of a job, he really doesn't have anything to do with his life, he's uh, becoming uh, increasingly uh, an alcoholic to the point where it becomes chronic, uh, there's um, disputes within his 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 family, he's attacking the church, and he's effectively expelled. Uh, and then, of course, before that happens, he's representing uh, Muhammad Ali at a trial level, this is where Muhammad Ali is contesting, um, being drafted into the uh, military during the war, the Vietnam War, and he's, uh, doing so on religious, uh, conscience grounds. And, um, Hayden Covington really kind of blows the trial. Uh, Makes some bad arguments. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, didn't cross-examine as many witnesses or as well as he should have. But by this time, he's just out of it. I mean, he dies at 67, so he's not that old of a man. Um, but toward the end, um, He's basically unemployed. Um, his family is is broken up. He's a chronic alcoholic. He's expelled from the church. Um, things look pretty bad there toward the end. Uh, just before, not long before he dies, they bring him back into the fold. I think they see that da- death is knocking at his door, and he fades away uh, into o- oblivion. Um, and for decades and decades. Uh, Nobody knows the name Hayden C. Covington, and to this day, um, uh, he remains uh, unknown. I I, I hope, I I sometimes fantasize about, because there's more to be said about Hayden Covington. There's been books written on the Jehovah's Witnesses. Um, There's been a few books written about them and and their struggle for religious freedom. Uh, But almost a whole book could be done on Hayden Covington. Um, But So this article is something that I had started collected information on years and years ago. And, you know, time permitting, I, I may someday do a book on him. But I just, for the time being, wanted to get his name out there uh, in in the world of, of legal scholarship in terms of people who are teaching First Amendment law.
0: Yeah, you write at the end of your piece, the past, after all, lives only in the memories of the living. Yeah. Who remembered Hayden, Hayden Covington that brought him to your attention? Or did you just happen to see his name on... Supreme yeah, Court I
1: was briefs. I was uh working on uh putting together some materials uh for my uh constitutional law class. Um and as I was going through these various Supreme Court opinions, I noticed the name Hayden Covington came coming up. Mm-hmm. Again and again and again, and so I worked with my library Uh, our librarians, and we did some research. And I found out much to my surprise that this fellow had argued an enormous number of cases, a significant number of cases in the Supreme Court. And so I started doing research. And really, I mean, over the years, either alone or with David Scover or with Sam Shaltain, I've tried to pick people who've uh, made important contributions to First Amendment law, but are off the kind of the radar screen. So Lenny Bruce, uh, 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 Lawrence Ferlinghetti, uh, Benjamin Gitlow, I mean, you know, from Gitlow versus New York, uh, Charlotte Whitney, as in Whitney versus California. And um, there's another person, Robert L. Carter. I mean, who knows the name Robert L. Robert L. Carter? Robert L. Carter. He was second in command. Now, it's just so happened that the guy who was in first in command was so significant and cast such a a long shadow that you didn't see the number two guy. The number one guy was the chief counsel for the NACP, Thurgood Marshall. But the second guy in line was a fellow named Robert L. Carter. Robert L. Carter had argued a number of First Amendment cases before the Supreme Court on behalf of the NAACP, and one of them was called NAACP versus Alabama, decided in 1958, and there the doctrine of freedom of association. So if you look at the text of the First Amendment—
0: Association isn't there. It
1: isn't there. There's assembly there, there's petition there, there's speech there, there's press there, there's exercise there— and there's no establishment there, but there's no assembly, uh, uh, no freedom of no, association. association. And so Robert L. Carter, uh, after he graduated from uh, uh, Howard Law School, uh, a, a person of color, African-American, had applied to Columbia Law School where he got an LLM, and he wrote his dissertation on freedom of association. That dissertation, by the way, remains unpublished. I have a copy of it, and um, I, I, I would like to... Uh, uh, publish it along with a introduction to it, um, but at any event, the idea of uh, freedom of association uh, it, it didn't come from the Warren Court. They, they they were they needed somebody to bring the case before them and to conceptualize for them, and that person was Robert L. Carter. So. Um, uh, there are these figures over the years that either alone or as I said with my co-author David Scover, or with Sam shaltaine where I wrote uh, with whom I wrote we must not be afraid to be free uh, there was a, a chapter in there on Benjamin gitlow there was a chapter in there on Robert L Carter um, something in there as on Charlotte Whitney as well um, so these are people that have made important contributions so much of our law is court-centric and judge-centric it just focuses on the judges as if, uh, you know, these cases just magically come before them. And that the people who bring them or the people who are actually involved in them, Benjamin Gitlow, Charlotte Whitney, Lawrence Getty, Lenny Bruce, they somehow kind of vanish and become insignificant.
0: Unless they become Supreme Court justices like Thurgood Marshall yeah, or right. Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Right,
1: right. And so what, what what I've been trying to do all these years is give some airtime because the First Amendment isn't just what judges write about. The First Amendment is what the people do with their rights. And they may be as um, individuals, Lenny Bruce, Charlotte Whitney, um, Benjamin Gitlow, Lawrence Phelan or they may be the lawyers, uh, Clayton, uh, Hayden Covington or uh, Robert L. Carter.
0: Yeah. You say there are a couple just kind of practical reasons why our understanding of the law or appreciation for the law, our revere of certain figures in the law is judge-centric. You say because for— most of time up until recent history, it was just hard to find out about these lawyers because you'd get the decisions, but you couldn't access the briefs unless you had access to a specialized library. Uh, the internet didn't always publish them. Now SCOTUS blog is very good about making clear who's – and FIRE's First Amendment library also also um, talks about the lawyers. But it was very hard as a law student to get this information.
1: Uh, yeah. And so it's not taught in law schools. It's not taught in colleges. Uh, in fact, most of the editions, including the official edition of the Supreme Court reports, uh, at least as first print printed now, uh, don't list the names of the lawyers. They not only used to list the names of the lawyers, they used to, I guess prior to 1943 or something, right about there, list, there would, would be summaries of the lawyers' arguments in the Supreme Court that were actually printed in the official record. That's all gone now. I think the only place online that m- mentions the name of the lawyers is, um, uh, is Oyes. Oh Oyez? Oh, um, oh yeah, Oyez, uh, yeah, oh yeah, yes. Um, SCOTUS blog doesn't do it? Uh, no. No, when they list... If you go to the trial transcript, I mean, the uh, transcript for moral arguments they do. Yeah. But in terms of the opinions, no. Those are on Justicia, and I don't believe
0: they list the names of the lawyers there. Well, another reason is that you write in your article, because I should mention your article is... It begins with a discussion about the paucity of litigation scholarship, scholarship about litigators, and then uses that as a segue to talk about one litigator about whom very little has been written, Hayden C. Covington. Uh, but another reason you give is that a lot of law professors are never actually practicing lawyers. I mean, they're lawyers, of course, but they, uh, they spend their time in the academy or as clerks and then go straight into the, to the Yeah, professors. and so
1: their view of the world of constitutional law is what judges write. Uh, so for example, uh, if you ask any law professor, well, where does the commercial speech doctrine come from? And they will say, um, and I would say 99% of them would say this, um, it comes from uh, uh, the Virginia Pharmacy case, uh, and the idea came from Justice uh, Harry Blackman, the author of that opinion, and before that, uh, uh, in some language, in the Bigelow case, Bigelow versus Virginia. Well, that's not quite Accurate. Uh, It came from a group called the Litigation Group, which is a Nader group, a Ralph Nader group, a consumer group, a progressive uh, group um, arguing on on behalf of uh, of the First Amendment. and so the doctrine, commercial speech doctrine, really begins with a lawyer named Alan Morrison, who's now at George, uh, George Washington Law School, um, and is thereafter, and he wins the, he, he argued, uh, uh, I guess, in the Bigelow case, and then in the Virginia Pharmacy, where the doctrine is actually launched, um, he, had, he was the lawyer who brought that case, and successfully so. And thereafter, years later, with David Vladek, now of Georgetown Law School, uh, the First Amendment doctrine uh, uh, really develops in significant ways because of these lawyers. All right. And so uh, to say that, you know, it was Harry Blackman is part of the story, but the really important part of the story that's left out of the equation. It could be David Vladek, it could be um, Alan Morrison, it could be Robert L. Carter, it could be Hayden C. Covington. Um, you know, it could be, you know, any number of people. I mean, it's rather interesting. When I did the book with Sam shaltaine We Must Not Be Afraid to Be Free, we were kind of fascinated to find out that the same lawyer who argued um, uh, Gitlow versus New York also argued Whitney versus California, Robert Nels. Mm. Uh, you know, and who remembers him? Uh, he was a law clerk to a fellow on the um, uh, uh, state high court of New York, a fellow named Cordozo. Oh, not he wasn't a law clerk. He worked in Cordozo's law firm. That's right. Uh and then Cordozo goes on to the court and Robert Nell's uh Uh, argues uh, Gitlow and Whitney. I mean, it's really rather significant. And when Nels dies, uh, I believe Zachariah Chafee writes in The Nation magazine, we've lost one of our great defenders of civil liberties. But who knows? Who remembers Robert Nels? Who remembers Hayden Covington? Who remembers, I mean, any of these people? Uh, And more recently, as I said, uh, you have all of these uh, folks who play a significant role, like uh, Alan Morrison, like uh, David Vladek, and they're just left out of the picture.
0: Yeah, well, let's take your call of action by way of closing here. Who are the First Amendment litigators today that we should know? You write in your article about Jim Bopp, James Bopp, who is uh, they call the terror terror Haute, who's responsible for a lot of the, the uh, campaign finance law.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, if you look at campaign finance law and you look at the cases that come to the Supreme Court that started in the lower courts, the name that keeps bopping up, and, and, and i for Pun intended. That, yeah, a little. <laughs> uh, but, but whatever one makes of uh, the views espoused by James Bob, uh, he's a significant player. He deserves to be recognized. He also litigates a lot in the area of um, uh, abortion uh, that is a, a quote unquote pro life. Um, but uh, he's definitely
0: a player in the world of campaign finance, and yet, you know, very few people, I mean... Part of that's probably because he lives and practices out of rural Indiana. Well, Terre Haute's not right. really rural, but it's a small town, small right. city. But
1: yeah. but still, I mean, you start... I mean, I had done a, a book with David Scover on uh, campaign finance, uh, When Money Speaks, and when we were kind of going through all those campaign finance cases, James Bob, James Bob, James Bob, James Bob, James Bob. it's just amazing how often... Uh, that uh, that name came up. Um, uh, th- there was a, um, a defamation case that had gone to the Supreme Court involving Johnny Cochran. Uh, uh, Johnny Cochran was suing for uh, a defamation, and there was a First Amendment defense that had been raised, um, a First Amendment defense against um, the claim of defamation. And the case was briefed and uh, all ready to go in the U.S. Supreme Court uh, and uh, there was a fellow who's now the dean of uh, University of California School of Law at Berkeley, Erwin Chemerinsky. Now, as it turned out, um, uh, that case was mooted by his death. Um, but there's all Not these... by Chemerinsky's death. No, no not by excuse still around me. No, no, but by Cochran's death. Okay. Uh, by the way, when Cochrane was a younger man and a um, prosecutor, he was one of the people that prosecuted Lenny Bruce. Mm. All right. Wow. So, it, you know, it's just kind of amazing. Um, uh, so the history, the culture of the First Amendment is more than just what lawyer, what judges write. It's what lawyers do. It's what people do. And it's that idea, that portion of the First Amendment's history uh, that sometimes alone, sometimes with David Scober, sometimes with Sam Chaltain. And forthcoming now with uh, Bill Creeley and Dave Hudson and Jackie Farmer, we're trying to kind of broaden the the historical lens to include these other important figures.
0: Well, Ron, I think we'll end there. Again, as Ron writes, the past, after all, lives only in the memories of the living. And we'll do our best on this podcast to feature some of these First Amendment litigators. We, We do a pretty good job. We bring a lot of litigators on the show and talk about their work and its effect on the rights that we use every day. So, Ron, thanks for coming on the show. What what should we plug before we head out of here? First things first, uh, you're upcoming.
1: Coming next year, Robert Corn Revere. Uh, I believe the title of the book is the mind of the censor and the eye of the beholder coming out on cambridge university press next year uh bob forgive me if uh i didn't know he was writing a book uh, he is he's well into it he's i've seen portions of it it's very exciting a very robert cornervere a very noted first amendment lawyer i I believe the book will be coming out next year as i understand it he's going to be finishing it um at the end of this year and it'll be coming out next year but i've read a couple of chapters. Uh, and uh, it is, there's a lot of history in it. And if the name Anthony Comstock means anything to you, uh, wait until you read uh, Robert Cornevere's forthcoming book. So if I can plug that, it's a, he's a very noted person. He's been lawyer. on this podcast a few times. Yeah,
0: and he has a
1: book coming out next year.
0: Well, thank you, Ron. For those of you who want to check out Ron's article in the Florida International University Law Review, it came out in the spring 2019 edition, and it's called Thoughts on Hayden C. Covington and the Paucity of Litigation Scholarship.
1: And it's available online
0: for free. Yes, it is. And I'll link it in the show notes here. This podcast is hosted, produced, and recorded by me, Nico Perino, and edited by Aaron Reese. To learn more about So To Speak, you can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com free speech talk. You can like us on Facebook at slash so to speak podcast. And you can also email us feedback or questions at so to speak at the fire.org. I ask you every episode. If you enjoyed this show, please consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or Google Play, wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews help us attract new listeners to the show. And until next time, I thank you again for listening.